Hello, and welcome to Dialogue in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Sylvina Puglisi, and I'm a clinical assistant professor of dermatology at Stanford. I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Grant Kells, being chair emeritus of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and a professor of dermatology, pathology, and pediatrics. Today, we'll be discussing the October 2021 Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology article, Evidence Concerning the Accusation that Melanoma is Overdiagnosed. Dr. Grant Kells, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. I'm so excited to delve into this topic here today, and I'm looking forward to hearing your insights. I wanted to open with what led you to focus on this question. So there was an article in the New England Journal in January of this past year that came out of Boston and Texas that I found very offensive. It talked about the rising incidence of melanoma, and it was somewhat, I thought, condescending in that it sort of blamed the rising incidence on dermatologists. And I think it's a very complicated topic. And some of their conclusions I vehemently disagreed with. Several people in conjunction with me wrote a letter to counter this article, but the New England Journal must have been inundated in letters like ours and obviously didn't take our letter. So it was because the topic was more complicated that we should have the opportunity to discuss it more thoroughly in a a journal so that the readers and the dermatologists in the country wouldn't have to just deal with this article without it being answered or responded to. Thank you for explaining that. And along with that question, I'd like to talk a little bit about why would melanoma overdiagnosis be considered something bad? Even if we said that it is being overdiagnosed, how can that be perceived as a bad thing? Well, the perception of it being a bad thing is point counterpoint. Mm -hmm. is that many melanomas, particularly those on chronically sun-damaged skin, spend decades in the horizontal growth phase. And giving someone the diagnosis of a melanoma is obviously very upsetting. And then there's a certain amount of morbidity associated with the surgery for a potential neoplasm that might not invade and cause harm. Of course, how do you know which insight to melanoma is going to become invasive, I would like to know whether any of the authors of that New England Journal article, if they were diagnosed with having an insight to melanoma, would say, oh, fine, I'll just let it be. And maybe I'll Russian roulette, I'll live longer than it takes for it to become invasive and metastasize. And so personally, I don't think it's a negative. I think that we're saving, ultimately going to be saving lives. But the topic is a very complicated one because we don't know which insight to melanomas will become invasive and our abilities to diagnose have improved over the years. So let's touch a little bit on how the numbers have changed throughout the years. Can you run through some of the numbers that you talk about in the article in terms of the increased incidence of melanoma? not to get specific because that's in the article and I don't want to bore the listeners, but obviously everyone is aware of the fact that the incidence of melanoma has increased every single year. Um, 
astronomically, almost as if it's an epidemic. And yet the good news is that the mortality has leveled off and even dropped a little bit. Potentially, I would think due to early diagnosis of melanomas and due to the new therapies since 2011. So that there is a disconnect and a discordance between the numbers that are diagnosed and the mortality, which has gone down, if anything. And so that's why those authors propose that we're doing too many biopsies and diagnosing too many melanomas. Because essentially the the outcome of diagnosing more melanomas hasn't impacted the mortality. Correct. In the article, you do mention that the incidence of melanoma diagnosis has remained stable in Black populations since 1975. Can you explain why that might be? The honest truth is no, and I don't think anyone can explain why that might be. However, I would say that the authors who recommended that we only screen high-risk people, which would be older white men, would be doing a tremendous disservice to the Black population because when they do get diagnosed with melanoma, it's usually invasive and deep because they are unsuspected. They themselves don't think they're going to get melanoma and the doctors taking care of them, the family docs, don't think of them as high-risk. So to not screen people with dark skin is not the answer because, in fact, if anything, we need to educate those populations that they are, even though they're darker skinned, at risk for developing skin cancers. I've had several melanomas that I've diagnosed in very dark skinned patients, one of which metastasized and killed a young mother. So even though the incidence hasn't gone up, it's a real phenomenon. And I think not screening those people is inappropriate. Absolutely. So then there is mention of a number of factors that might explain the changes in incidence. And I want to take the opportunity to run through some of these factors to see how they might have impacted incidence of melanoma diagnosis through the years. So first you talk about the aging population. Can you describe that a little bit more? Sure. So, I mean, it's not everyone is aware of the fact that people are living longer and there are certain diseases are increased in incidence because of that. I mean, the same as cataracts are on the increase because people are living macular degeneration, Parkinson's, all these diseases are age related. And when people died younger, they didn't get them. Well, similarly, people are getting older and we're getting more skin cancer. I'm living proof of that. We're living longer lives and we're living vital, relatively healthy lives so that people in their 70s and 80s are still jogging and playing tennis and golf and being exposed to the carcinogen, which is sunlight. You can't discount that as a fact in why there is an increasing incidence of melanoma. Perfect. And then you do mention that even though there is an aging population accounting for some of the melanomas that have been diagnosed in recent years, it still doesn't paint the whole picture because we are seeing increased melanoma incidence in other age groups as well. Well, there's also tanning parlors. I mean, tanning parlors have played a role in younger people getting, I mean, I'm seeing 16, 17, 18, and kids in their 20 getting basal cells and squamous cells. And I've also seen melanomas. So there's no question that suntan parlors are playing a role. Increased leisure time, because although chronic sun exposure, that's like for a gardener or somebody who spends all day outside and gets very tan, doesn't seem to be as clearly associated with melanoma. Intermittent sunburns certainly seems associated with melanoma. And we as a population, except during COVID, tend to go in the middle of the winter, go to Florida, the Caribbean, and get nice and burned. And we're also going to suntan parlors and getting burned there with UVA light. So I think it's so complicated that to simplify it and blame it on dermatologists, I think is deceptive. And I took offense at that. The other thing I'd like to mention is that dermatology is one of the few fields 
where there are pseudomalignancies. As a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist who spend time in pathology, I can tell you that other fields of pathology are much easier than dermatopathology. It's a very nuanced subspecialty, which is why it's so interesting and intellectual for us who pursue it. There are many neoplasms that can mimic malignancies, both squamous and melanocytic. And so it's a very nuanced field. And I think that needs to be taken into the consideration. If you get a nuanced atypical melanocytic proliferation in an older person, are you going to call that a spitz? Or are you going to take a chance? Or are you going to overcall it possibly and recommend that that lesion be excised? And so I think unlike other specialties, this is a more nuanced specialty that might also be contributing to the overdiagnosis. And to sort of play off that comment, you did talk a little bit about the path diagnoses of melanomas throughout the years. And not being a dermatopathologist, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about how that has changed and how that might be impacting incidence of melanoma diagnosis. I think that's a very important factor. So in the 60s and the 70s, people didn't call things in situ melanoma. They called them Hutchinson's freckle, sun damaged skin. And you look back at some of those slides or even look at some of the articles and the images are clearly a lentigo malignant and they were undercalled. So we've become more precise with our terminology, thanks to people like Bernie Ackerman, who was my trainer. In addition, we have immunoproxity stains now. So we have an ability to actually count increased number of melanocytes and see melanocytes above the basal layer or in confluence at the DE junction much easier now due to the immunoproxidase stains. So I think we are diagnosing earlier lesions and more accurately. It's a rare phenomenon for dermatopathologists to disagree. So if you take a group of expert dermatopathologists and pigmented lesions and show them borderline lesions, there may be a disagreement in about 15% of those lesions. That's not very high for those borderline difficult lesions. Some people say 30%. That's an exaggeration. It's about 15% when you really look at the literature and most of the studies. And I think that that shows that it's again, a very subtle specialty with pseudomalignancies and that has to be taken into consideration. So the disagreement among dermatopathologists for borderline lesions is in fact a relatively rare event and our ability to recognize and call something what it actually is has improved over time, which was not the case in the 60s and 70s when we undercalled things. So it sounds like what you're explaining is that the diagnosis of melanoma on a histopathologic basis is actually very, very precise, and that it's not just kind of like willy-nilly, we're going to call everything melanoma because we don't want to miss anything, but there really seems to be very low discrepancy for these borderline lesions. I think so. And dermatopathologists don't like to call something a melanoma unless they're pretty sure it's a melanoma. Nobody wants to label a patient with having a melanoma. Most of us would call something atypical melanocytic proliferation. I'm not sure, cut it out, rather than call something a flat-footed a melanoma. It is a little confusing. The whole concept of dysplastic nevi has confused things. How many pagetoid cells are, do you need to call something melanoma in situ versus severely dysplastic. And that obviously more study needs to be done in that area. But I think most dermatopathologists, if anything, will undercall something and sign it out descriptively as long as the lesion gets excised and not give the patient a label of a melanoma unless they're pretty confident it is a melanoma.
That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining that. And then the other topic that I guess going along with path diagnoses, you talk about skin biopsies and that may also be contributing to the increased incidence of melanoma in the sense that more lesions are being biopsied. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, I think there is some truth to that. I don't think it's because what the authors of the New England Journal article wrote, because we want to make more money. I honestly don't. I mean, at least in the people I know and that I surround myself with, and I know many private practice dermatologists as well as academic, they're not removing pieces of people's skin to make money. What, but what is happening is that we have a lot of physician extenders, and there's an unequivocal proof that they do more biopsies than are probably necessary because they don't know as much. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not trained as thoroughly as we are. So there is that issue that there are more biopsies being done. But on the other side of the coin, the authors of the New England Journal of Article recommended that we not biopsy pigmented lesions that are less than seven millimeters in diameter. I was horrified by that statement because more than 11% of melanomas are less than seven millimeters in diameter and three quarters of those can be invasive. So there was an article in the British Journal of Dermatology several years ago that proved that. So I want to pick up melanomas when they're smaller than the end of an eraser. I'm not waiting for them to be two centimeters in diameter before I get alarmed. That's my role is to get them when they're early. And again, I think it's a tremendous disservice. If I put my dermatoscope on a pigmented lesion and I see gray dot granules or atypical streets or asymmetrical globules, I'm going to biopsy that lesion, even if it's less than seven millimeters in diameter, and I'm going to pick up early melanomas, I hope. Yeah, and I think that in general, probably most patients would be really grateful about that as opposed to, you know, monitoring until something is a little bit more invasive, potentially right. aggressive with the explanation of not wanting to biopsy too many things. But, you know, of course, completely understand we don't want to biopsy every pigmented lesion we see. And that is a problem, it sounds like, with physician extenders. But at least for most dermatologists, they are being very judicious about choice of lesion to biopsy. And there shouldn't be these sort of blanket statements about what size lesion to biopsy. I agree. And then another th thing that I found really interesting was when you spoke about skin cancer screenings and how there doesn't seem to be essentially any evidence showing that increased skin cancer screening would improve melanoma-specific mortality based on the current evidence. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of skin cancer screenings and melanoma diagnosis? That is an issue that needs to be studied further, but the evidence to date doesn't show that skin cancer screenings increase mortality for skin cancer. On the other hand, it depends upon what your intention are. So part of skin cancer screenings, particularly the free skin cancer screenings that many of us participate in, are a way to educate the population about risky behavior, and also to let them know more about our specialty and to make them aware of their risks and things to look for. So in fact, skin cancer screenings to date have not shown to have an impact on survival data. I do think they accomplish a very important product, which is education and making people aware of protective behavior, which has been shown in countries like Australia to have an impact on survival and incidence of melanoma. So I, again, would disagree with the authors of that New England Journal article. I think skin cancer screenings are a good thing and I participate in them in my community for that reason. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I've certainly had patients who initially met our department through a skin cancer screening and then a couple of years later came in and said, oh, I remember that you guys mentioned this and I had this lesion of concern. So I agree that the education component is so important and maybe one of the main benefits of such a program. It's also you know, how we're looked in the house of medicine. We want to reach out to the public and be available to the public rather than be considered a specialty that's very aloof. And I think going out and doing skin cancer screenings at schools and churches and even at beaches is a very good thing. And we do it at marathons and things of that sort where we have a tent and they see there are dermatologists who are giving back to the community and willing to educate and take time from their families to do skin cancer screen. I think it's very important for us as a visible specialty. Absolutely. And then the last factor that I wanted to speak a little bit more on was ultraviolet exposure. I know you touched a little bit on indoor tanning. Can you talk a bit about UV exposure and increased incidence of melanoma? So again, unlike basal cells and squamous cell carcinoma, there's not a direct correlation between chronic sun exposure and the incidence of melanoma. However, there was a wonderful article many years ago that showed that as people's clothing became skimpier, bathing suits, and people had more leisure time and were going to the beach more, that the incidence of melanoma increased along with that behavior. And certainly the suntan parlors, which are UVA light and obviously penetrate deep in the skin, there's been a shown incidence. So I think there is a role to melanoma. Obviously, there are types of melanomas that are due to chronic sun exposure, like the lentigo malignant type. And I do advocate for protective behavior like protective clothing and appropriate use of sunscreens and avoiding the midday sun for various reasons. One for non-melanoma skin cancer, but also for melanoma and photo aging as the population lives longer. They want to have better looking, younger looking skin. So I do think there is a role. We do know that sunlight causes DNA damage. And so again, I think that our advice to patients is still appropriate. And then you mentioned in that same section that at least based on our recent meta-analysis, it seems that sunscreen utilization does not seem to impact melanoma incidence. Can you talk a bit more about that particular well, comment? In fact, some, there are some studies to show that people who use sunscreens get more skin cancer. Everything is a lot more complicated than just a superficial reading. So a lot of people put sunscreens on and then think they can lay out in the sun all day and they don't reapply it. And by the way, who puts on an ounce of sunscreens? You know, if you buy a six ounce tube, that means by the end of a weekend, it should be gone. And most people have a tube of sunscreen all summer. So we're not putting it on appropriately to equal the SPF. And we tend to go swimming and we perspire and we don't reapply. So I think that there is this potential that people put sunscreens on, think they're safe, and then are in the sun all day and get, are getting a lot more sun exposure. So it's a lot more complicated. If you could really do a controlled study where you controlled how much people were putting on and how they behaved, I think you'd find different results, but you can't do that study. People don't even want to wear masks during COVID <laughs> or get vaccinated. So who am I to tell them how to behave after they put on sunscreens? Your point about it being so complex and really nuanced and not just one intervention with one outcome. I see that all the time in California. People always say, oh, well, I don't wear sunscreen on certain days. I'm not really outside, but people are outside all the time. 
here. And walking to the car, walking their dog, right? Walking between <laughs> buildings, shopping. Absolutely. Or it's cloudy out, right? Yeah. Or it's cool out. It's a sunny day, but it's cool. So they don't think there's a lot of sun. The thing that offended me about that New England Journal article, and I don't mean this as a per, I mean, I'm sure the people who wrote it are lovely people, but they took it, they took one perspective. I was surprised that New England Journal published it without a counterpoint because each of the points they made are very complex. There is a point that they're absolutely correct. The incidence has gone up. The mortality is stable or gone down. That is true, but it's a complicated topic. And to simplify it and just blame dermatologists and say not to screen people and not to biopsy lesions less than seven millimeters, I think gives the wrong message. And I was very offended by that. Yeah. And in some ways, it sort of seems to kind of minimalize the work that dermatologists are doing. (laughs) A lot of people were very upset. It made them feel like their efforts are being underappreciated. And I'd like to know of those authors, if they had a lesion on their skin that was diagnosed as an inside to melanoma, whether they would allow it to stay and not have it re-excised. I suspect that their answer would be no, they would want it excised. I think that based on what we've chatted about today and also the title of the article as evidence concerning the accusation (laughs) that melanoma is overdiagnosed, I'm going to ask you a question, but I think I know your answer to it. Do you think that melanoma is overdiagnosed? No, I think there are too many biopsies being done. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to train nurse practitioners to better use dermoscopy. I didn't like the accusation that the dermatoscope makes me do more biopsies. I mean, I couldn't live without my dermatoscope. I think if you don't know how to use your dermatoscope, it may cause you to do more biopsies. But if you become skilled, I think it helps you pick up early cancer. So I think diagnosing melanomas at the earlier stage, we should be applauded for that, not criticized for that. Our goal is to diagnose skin cancer at its earliest stages so that it causes the least morbidity and mortality, which means also the least amount of scarring when you treat it. And as patients live longer and longer, there's going to be an increase of all types of skin cancer. And I consider myself Sherlock Holmes when I'm in the clinic. You know, where is the hiding skin cancer on elderly patients? And with my dermatoscope, I'm able to pick up very early skin cancers and cure people. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. I'm thinking about two patients recently in their late 90s who were diagnosed with invasive melanomas. And I'm pretty sure the families would have been grateful to have had those diagnosed earlier on, as opposed to now at that age, having to think about treatment options and next steps. You had mentioned that there are more skin biopsies being done. And obviously you sort of already feel strongly that it's not for a financial incentive. Can you talk a little bit about the medical legal causes behind potentially more biopsies being obtained? Absolutely. There was an article also in in the New England Journal in about 2011 about malpractice cases. And although dermatologists don't get sued as often as other specialties and the amount that we get sued for is less, dermatopathologists get sued a lot. And when your dermatopathologist gets sued, often everybody gets sued. And the most common cause for a lawsuit is failure to diagnose. And the most common failure to diagnose is a melanoma. In that article that I was referring to, they said that three quarters of dermatologists by the age of 65 have been sued. And the most common cause is misdiagnosis or failure to diagnose. And the most common issue is melanoma. So yeah, I mean, we all live in fear of freezing an amelanotic melanoma, right? Thinking it's an AK. I tell my residents that all the time that, you know, the one thing you don't want to miss is a melanoma or Merkel or, you know, these, that's our role. That's, you know, that's a very 
It's like underdiagnosis cutaneous T-cell lymphoma as eczema. You want to be able to diagnose things early and try to make an impact on patients' lives. And so I think that that is our job is to use all the skills we have available, including the dermatoscope and now the confocal microscope and OCT and other technologies and tape stripping for DNA testing to make the diagnosis early and cure these lesions with a simple excision. Dr. Grankels, thank you so much for shedding some light on the background behind this article and also just doing a little bit of a deep dive with us into it. Your passion for this topic is so palpable, and I really appreciate you providing this counterpoint to the issue of melanoma diagnosis. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention before we close? No, I think you asked me all the right questions. I just would say I applaud all the dermatologists who have become experts with dermoscopy and are making the diagnosis of melanoma earlier. And I think they should be very proud of what they've accomplished. And we're doing the right thing, in my opinion. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.